Hello and welcome back to the show. Can we have a science of history? My guest thinks that we can. Peter Turchin is a complexity scientist who studies the history of large-scale societies. He's one of the more original thinkers I've encountered in the last few years, and I've referenced his concepts like elite overproduction often. Let me give you a couple of minutes of context on Peter and his ideas before we jump into the conversation. So Peter is one of the founders of a young field called Cleodynamics. In fact, Peter himself coined the term Cleodynamics about 20 years ago. Cleo is the Greek muse of history, dynamics, the science of change. Peter was originally a mathematical biologist before entering the social sciences, and he contends that we should test historical theories just like we test scientific ones. For example, it's not satisfactory that we have roughly 200 explanations for the fall of Rome. We need to test them against the empirical data. Even better, can we find theories that describe the dynamics of complex human societies in general? Peter thinks that we can. Even if the course of history is chaotic, he still thinks studying the dynamics of past societies can yield empirical regularities, patterns that we may want to influence in our own society. Of the many historical patterns that clear dynamicists purvey, the most consequential one, or at least the one that's the focus of this conversation, is structural demographic theory. Structural demographic theory made Peter famous a couple of years ago, but before I explain why, let me briefly outline what it is. Longtime listeners of the podcast may recall structural demographic theory from my interview with its founding father, Jack Goldstone, back in 2021. The essence of structural demographic theory was proposed by Goldstone all the way back in 1991, but in the decades since, Peter Turchin has taken it forward, translating it into dynamical models expressed both as differential equations and agent-based simulations. In simple terms, Peter's refinement to structural demographic theory suggests that societies cycle through phases of integration, marked by harmony and cooperation, and disintegration, marked by instability and political violence. No complex society has been spared from a disintegrative phase. But what causes this social disintegration? What are the red flashing lights that warn us of impending political instability? Peter likes to quote Arnold Toynbee, that great empires die not by murder, but by suicide. If we exclude external geopolitical factors, then the internal drivers of political instability are threefold. Popular immiseration, overproduction of elites, and state weakness, with the most important driver being overproduction of elites. In disintegrative periods, Peter has found, collective political violence occurs roughly every 50 years. So why did this theory propel Peter, once a somewhat obscure academic, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying that, into the media spotlight? Well, some years ago, it dawned on him that all the indicators for the United States took an ominous turn in the 1970s, suggesting that 2020 would see an outbreak of political instability. Peter predicted as much in a now well-known Nature article in 2010. Needless to say, his prediction seems to have been borne out. If you're concerned about the state of American, and for that matter, Western European society, and you enjoy books like Bob Putnam's The Upswing, Angus Deaton and Anne Case's Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism, Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, Tyler Cowen's The Great Stagnation, then you will probably also enjoy Turchin's work. Indeed, one way of viewing his work is as an attempt to unify these different perspectives 
under one theoretical framework. I traveled to Connecticut to record this conversation with Peter in person. I hope you enjoy. Before we start the conversation, a quick notice, I'm doing a cross-promotion with the Clearer Thinking podcast. If you enjoy my podcast, I think you would also like the Clearer Thinking podcast with host Spencer Greenberg. It's a podcast about ideas that matter. I've listened to many of Spencer's episodes over the years. He has captivating intellectual conversations with fascinating guests. Recent guests on the Clearer Thinking podcast include Ilya Sutskova, the co-creator of ChatGPT, famed philosopher Peter Singer, and Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn. Give it a listen. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Clearer Thinking. Peter Turchin, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So Peter, I first encountered your work, I think in 2019, and I thought it provided one of the most compelling explanations of what I was witnessing in the US, albeit from the shores of Australia. And I've also had Jack Goldstone on the podcast in 2021, uh, and I've kept in touch with him since then. I told him that we were, we were doing this today. And then, of course, you're the, I guess, the father of Clear Dynamics. One of them. <laughs> yeah, one of them. And Clear Dynamics is the application of big data and mathematical models to find patterns in history. But it, it does this in a non-naive way that draws heavily on complex system science. And you have a new book out called End Times. Before we discuss that and a bunch of other topics, I wanted to start with this broad question of whether a science of history is possible. So as you know, Karl Popper famously objected to the notion of a science of history. And I think his objection is best expressed in the preface to his book, The Poverty of Historicism, where he presents this neat little syllogism that essentially says... Number one, the course of human history is strongly influenced by the growth of knowledge. Number two, we cannot predict by rational or scientific methods the future growth of our scientific knowledge because, you know, if, for example, someone in the Stone Age predicted the invention of the wheel, then ipso facto, they would just have invented it. And number three, we cannot therefore predict the future course of history. So what do you make of Popper's objection? Well, first of all, future is not uh, predictable to an arbitrary degree of uh, accuracy. We know that. It's, we, we cannot even predict the weather two weeks from now. And that's a purely physical system, which is completely understood how it operates because of what's known as mathematical chaos. So human societies are more compli complicated, more complex, and uh, therefore accurate prediction um, in arbitrary time in the future is impossible. So for example, the famous uh, foundation series by Isaac Asimov, it, uh, it is based, at least the first volume before the mule appears uh, on the scene, it is based on what we now understand is impossible to do. All right, but on the other hand, some things are predictable. First of all, uh, we can do scientific prediction. We can extract predictions from different theories and use then what happens in the real world to test theories and reject some in favor of others. Secondly, some um, aspects of uh, societal dynamics are more predictable than others. So in my book, I talk a lot about the structural trends which are very important because these are the structural trends that undermine resilience of societies to shocks. And therefore, when we have low resilience, high fragility, 
that's when we expect the uh, outbreaks of violence, including uh, major ones like civil wars and revolutions, to happen. But the actual timing of uh, when such outbreaks happen depend very much on what we call triggers. Triggers could be a ruler assassination or a symbolic act like self-immolation, or it could be a bad harvest, a bad climate event. So those triggers are very hard to predict. Probably they are unpredictable, especially because it depends when it depends on the free will of a human individual. So, so we have to keep in mind that some things uh, we can uh, predict because they develop slowly and more or less regularly. Other things are not. And the actual course of history is a combination of those two things. So that's the first thing. But let's now get to objection of Karl Popper. It is curious that he chose the evolution of technology as uh, his example of why history, the future of uh, human civilization, let's put it this way, is unpredictable because that turns out to be uh, one of the more predictable aspects of uh, the future. I'll give you um, uh, two examples. First of all, uh, the Moore's Law. It's just amazing that it just keeps uh, working, you know, many decades after it has been proposed. And there is work by former Santa Fe scientists, such as my good friend uh, Don Farmer, who have uh, who in, uh, published together with his colleagues a number of articles on the development of um, green technologies, for example. Those curves are quite uh, predictable. And also, if we look um, in the great uh, aggregate, look at, looking over thousands of years of human history of the evolution of technology, so at a very coarse uh, level, uh, we see also um, a uh, quite predictable. We have collected data, for example, on how military technology uh, developed over the past few thousand years. And it is uh, amenable both to analysis and to, uh, there is quite a lot of patterns. All right, and now a few anecdotes. Uh, people uh, tend to think that scientific, uh, new, uh, proposing new scientific explanations is somehow due to an individual genius. And I don't deny that uh, that many of those famous scientists, they were quite, uh, they were geniuses. You know, let's say, uh, let's uh, say we take um, the discovery of the loss of motion or even better, the invention of calculus. So calculus was in fact invented by uh, two separate um, mathematicians. Together, they were in this almost at the same time. And uh, in fact, there was a bitter feud between them as to who had the priority. Same thing, discovery, even a better example is the discovery of genes, right? Genetics, Mendelian genetics. Well, Mand Gregor Mendel actually was the, the, uh, the true discoverer, but he uh, wrote his uh, paper and he announced his discovery before 
the field was ready for it. And as a result of it, he was completely forgotten. Nobody knew about him. Until 40 years later, three separate scientists uh, almost simultaneously discovered the gene. So um, one of the three scientists who uh, was the rediscoverer of genes because he couldn't get priority, he uh, dug up Gregor Mendel's article. So basically saying, all right, if I cannot be uh, the, the one, then uh, none of those guys will <laughs> either. So, but by the major point I'm making, let me just again step back. So first of all, uh, in the aggregate, uh, we see that um, human technology develops in a fairly predictable way. That's one thing. And secondly, in, at the micro level, many of the uh, discoveries, uh, uh, great scientific discoveries, such as calculus, uh, genes, um, evolutionary theory uh, by natural selection, they happen to happen at the same uh, time. And that suggests that uh, it is really not the individual genius, it's the collective action of many scientists and thinkers who prepare the world for a, the next discovery. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that premise. Have you ever read Robert Merton's, the article he wrote for the, the New Scientist magazine in 1961 on, on this? No, I don't I'll think send so. It to you. It's, it's exactly on this, this question, but he goes through like a bunch of anecdotes. It's mm -hmm. interesting for why individual genius is kind of overrated in scientific history. And if you actually drill down, a lot of examples turn out to be pairs or groups of people. There is individuals uh, and there is collective action. And so there is no uh, tension really between... It's a false dichotomy. Uh, yes, it's yeah, a false yeah. dichotomy. Yeah. But it's also true to say that networks are like the air we breathe. So, so yeah, I agree with that premise. But, but what is the conclusion that you want me to infer from those micro examples? I want to... Um, the conclusion that I'm working towards to is that uh, evolution of technology is to a certain degree predictable, not perfectly, but uh, there, uh, we can predict it to a certain degree. And uh, we know that technology drives a lot of other historical processes. Mm. So a year ago, we published an article in Science Advances where we looked at uh, why uh, large-scale complex societies uh, evolved in human history. And it turns out that the engine is... Uh, the primary engine is between society competition, taking the form of warfare. All right, I have a book called Outer Society, which mm. explains this idea behind it. But what drives the intensification of warfare? Military technology. And so that turns out to be the most important factor that drove the, um, uh, the increase in social scale at which people are organized in states and empires. Okay, got it. So putting the question of the predictability of military technology to one side, because I don't know too much about that. I want to, I guess I want to attack your argument on three levels, your argument around those, those examples. Of, Please do. Examples of more than one person coming up with a discovery. So firstly, knowing that a technology will emerge is obviously not the same as knowing when it will emerge. And the question of timing involves a lot of contingency. For example, well, there are many examples, but one is Charles Babbage got pretty close to inventing universal computing in the 1830s, but then was sort of plagued by 
interpersonal conflicts and a lack of funding and so couldn't really bring it to fruition. Another example, uh, Francis Crick's autobiography mentions the fact that if Han Jim hadn't have discovered the, the double helix, it probably would have been another two or three years until one of the other competing research groups did. And timing really matters because technology interacts with contemporaneous other technologies as well as social factors in really complex ways. So even if you have a pretty good handle on what is going to emerge, you don't know when, and that's as much of a problem as not knowing what will emerge. So that's, that's my first rebuttal. Okay, let me address that. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, when we look at the evolution of uh, human societies over the time scales of hundreds and thousands of years, yeah. what's two or three years? It's just uh, no prediction can be um, 100% accurate. So making a prediction which, which is 1% accurate, that's awfully good in mm -hmm. my view, or even less than 1%. That's one thing. Second thing, the Babbage engine is a good example of Gregor Mendel. Essentially, he was ahead of his time. It wasn't just because of the personal interactions and things like that. Uh, in, we, we now know that, in principle, his uh, engine could have been built, but it was really beyond the bleeding edge, all right? And so uh, so that's why. And there was, uh, at that point, there was no need for it, all right? Mm -hmm. Beca because, uh, you know, what, what would it be used for? So engines, uh, so his engines were uh, perfected really during World War II and uh, after because the computational capacities were needed, you know, to break codes, you know, uh, to do all kinds of things. And at that point, there was enough infrastructure for them. And also, at that point, the material material science uh, advanced to the point. We had vacuum tubes and things like mm -hmm. that. So um, I think your example, your, uh, as they say, pour water on my meal, right? <laughs> uh, your examples actually uh, help uh, my uh, uh, my thesis especially if you keep in mind that 100% accuracy is unattainable. Therefore, we should not uh, throw away the results which give you awfully good accuracy, but not perfect accuracy. Okay, good rebuttals. Okay, I'll go to my second. what's your second point? So to say the future growth of scientific knowledge is unknowable is an ontological claim. To say it's merely unknown is an epistemic claim. And so let's assume the epistemic claim, which is the claim you're making, is correct. It still seems to fail due to massive practical issues. Like I just don't know how we would ever make use of it because it would seem to imply you'd, you'd have to keep tabs on every proverbial entrepreneur working in their garage around the world. No, um, and that's the nice thing about cleodynamics is that Without denying the important role of individuals, we have first focused mm. on their uh, movements at the meso and macro level. So at the level of not individuals, but cooperating groups or whole societies, actually states, mm. monarchies. All right. And at that level uh, of aggregation, the, um, most of the time, individuals uh, don't make a difference. So I'll give you an example. Here, uh, whatever, whichever way I vote in the next presidential elections, 
the state of Connecticut is going to go for the Democratic candidate. And therefore, my um, action, my action of free will will be completely buffered out and uh, it will not have any macro effect. On the other hand, if, uh, let's say, Florida becomes the key state in which the, um, the decision, uh, the f- uh, final decision would be made on who wins, all right? Maybe even one individual uh, vote may not be enough to sway it, but one individual going out and canvassing, you know, neighborhoods, getting 10,000 people to swing their vote, votes uh, from one uh, candidate to another, that could result in a macro level uh, result. So what we are uh, talking about, it is known um, in dynamic dynamical systems uh, as sensitive dependence on initial conditions, all right? But even sy- systems which are chaotic that uh, generate these erratic trajectories from purely internal causes, they are not uh, 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 fluttering of uh, the butterfly, the proverbial uh, fluttering of a butterfly wings, is only going to create a major hurricane if the butterfly is in the right place at the right time, all right? So millions of butterflies would be fluttering whatever they want. That would be no macro event, but uh, one would have uh, in, uh, in effect. So, um, so again, it's the mixture of uh, predictability and unpredictability. And, the, um, and individuals become influential because uh, they happen to be uh, in the right place at the right time. So Mohammed Bouazizi, the fruit vendor who immolated himself himself in Tunisia, uh, he there are lots of other people have immolated themselves. You know there was a bunch of American, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, veterans who uh, immolated themselves uh, to prevent the Vietnam War in 1965. There was no macro level effect. Of them, so uh, and, and you don't know ahead of time who is going to have that macro level mm. uh, effect. Got it. Okay, so this actually leads nicely onto the question of contingency. I'm going to leave leave out my third rebuttal because it's kind of already addressed by by your responses to the first two. It was sort of about computational irreducibility. Mm-hmm. But um, actually, before I move to contingency, out of curiosity, do you think the course of history is fundamentally deterministic, even if it's not predictable? No. Okay. Uh, but because I believe in free will. Yeah. Uh, this is a big question. We don't have empirical, uh, complete empirical knowledge that free will is not uh, just uh, an illusion. Mm. So this is a religious uh, question. And I, I, uh, I choose to believe that we have free will because that makes my life more meaningful to and comfortable as a result of that to yeah. have. Just as an aside, one of the interesting things I was talking about with Stephen Wolfram was that determinism and free will aren't actually incompatible in his paradigm because basically like the rules by which a system evolves, say technology, um, are deterministic, but you can't take a shortcut to the outcome using your brains or methods of analysis because they're computationally as sophisticated as the systems that you're observing. So you don't know what's going to happen, but the rules by which the system's evolving are deterministic. 
and in that space, I guess you can kind of call that free will. Yeah, well, or uh, it becomes a philosophical question. I'm not a philosopher. Yeah. I am a scientist. I, I want uh, to see what are the practical consequences of um, of our beliefs. Now, whether we do have or don't have free will, or whether uh, history is perfectly deterministic or not, is immaterial. Because even if history was completely deterministic, we would not be able to, uh, to uh, use that to predict uh, perfectly the state of uh, humanity, you know, hundreds of years in the future, because we know that uh, human societies, it's, uh, it's a chaotic system. It, uh, su- it suffers or enjoys the sensitive dependence on initial conditions. And since you cannot measure initial conditions so precisely, you uh, just think about what kind of apparatus you would have to have mm. in order to even let's let's give an example using the climate. The, the reason climate is unpredictable is because we cannot measure precisely the temperatures and pressures um, uh, across the earth precisely enough to predict it, you know, uh, months ahead. And the, because the reason is, is because your measuring apparatus will be larger than the earth. And you still won't be able to get uh, per- per- perfectly the initial uh, right. conditions. So you, you're much better off uh, putting your efforts into climate control rather than trying to measure it. Why, why measure it if, uh, if you don't want to have, uh, you know, uh, rain on this particular date or you want to have rain? We have, you know how to make rain. Uh, you know, the Russians fly airplanes and uh, they clear during the May 9th uh, demonstrations, if they want to have clear skies, then they just create a big patch of blue skies. So it's, uh, you know, the physics behind that. And so uh, my major point is that a prediction is overrated. If you're sitting on a condemned row and you know that you're going to be shot to death at crack of dawn, right? Um, You have perfect predictability. And it's completely useless predictability. <laughs> you might rather want to know how do you, you can escape that. Yeah. You want to understand things so that we can actually nudge it or even engineer the outcomes that we want. And this, right. essentially, this is the, the long-term goal of cleodynamics mm. is to get, we are not there by any stretch of imagination, but we want to get to the point where we can actually use it to engineer better social outcomes than unfavorable outcomes that everybody agrees we don't want to have a civil war, mm. all right? So uh, we, uh, uh, in the future, we will be able to use something like cleodynamics to uh, to prevent such bad outcomes. Yeah, I have a couple of questions just on that, but I'll save them for the end because there's some other context that I think we should bring out first. So a couple of questions on contingency. So... As you've said, Peter, clear dynamics focuses on groups, not individuals. And that's not because you don't think contingency is important. It's just, it's difficult to know how to actually model it. But do you think it's in principle possible that you could one day somehow include like the effect of remarkable individuals in the theoretical framework of clear dynamics? Or is it just naive to think that a fine-grained theory would ever be possible? It's an empirical question. And in fact, 
uh, the, uh, one of the next steps that we are doing, I can tell you more about the historical databases mm -hmm. that we are building. One of them is Crisis DB, so it's a database of past societies sliding into crisis and emerging from them. Now, uh, we, we are approaching 200 cases, and uh, eventually there will be 300 or more. And one of the driving um, forces behind uh, c collecting large number of case studies is that uh, now we see that the entry into crisis is fairly channelized. It's like a ball rolling down a narrow valley. There's only one place for the ball to go. But once you get to the cusp of the crisis, uh, the whole bunch of different trajectories open up. So see, I'm thinking as a dynamical uh, scientist. All right, and so that's where we see a huge variability of outcomes, and that's why we need a lot of examples to, first, uh, what we have done is characterize them statistically to find out what is the frequency of really bad outcomes, uh, good outcomes, and what's in between. But, but secondly, um, the next step that I want to pursue, assuming that I can get funding because this is all uh, takes uh, takes uh, quite a lot of uh, work, is to is to build into our database the role and characteristics of different leaders. All right, so it seems likely that uh, leaders uh, are important at these cusps. Right, you were talking about this earlier. So these are the, the uh, this is the trajectory diverg divergence region. A small push, uh, push uh, uh, may uh, uh, result in the trajectory going either to positive or to really catastrophic outcomes. And so uh, the uh, characteristics of leaders, there's, uh, that's, that's the next interesting question that we hmm. can ask. What are the characteristics for, of leaders that, whose decisions lead to uh, good outcomes, and what are characteristics of leaders whose decisions uh, lead to catastrophic outcomes? Now, I don't know uh, if there you, if we will find uh, any uh, signal in that uh, data, but that's an empirical question, and we we intend to find out. Interesting. How do you think about the interplay between contingency and broad impersonal forces? So take World War One for example, and we can quibble over the details of this example, but many historians argue that World War One was a highly contingent event. And then that contingent event eventually sets the stage for all of these structural forces that lead to arguably lead to World War Two. In a way, you could argue that it's like contingency all the way down. So so how do you deal with that? Is your answer again, well, you know, clear dynamics just looks at larger time scales? And contingency can't really shape structures over those larger timescales? It can, of course. And so, again, we are back to the question of the limits to predictability. And in the dynamical systems approach, we, uh, we can uh, in incorporate such uh, contingencies in a uh, reasonably straightforward way. So the contingency itself or that uh, that the event that has caused the trajectory to turn into a very different um, uh, direction is not predictable. 
All right, but uh, once that happens, the trajectory starts running uh, now in a more um, understandable and predictable way. So uh, this is uh, what you mean by contingency, contingent on this event, right? So this event itself perhaps is not uh, uh, predictable, mm-hmm. but uh, we can do, uh, we can investigate the trajectories contingent on such uh, events that resulted in macro changes. So that's one thing. But the second thing, if um, uh, here is another metaphor from the from dynamical systems science that's useful. If you think about systems uh, in in chaotic regime, they are typically found on a strange attractor, which could be a f- fairly low dimensional attractor. So if you uh, kick the system in one of the sensitive places, then the peak, the next peak might disappear or, uh, you know, or vice versa. Instead of uh, not having a peak, you would have a peak and things like that. So there would be macro level event. But with the trajectory, after the trajectory will go back, it will be still on the same uh, strange attractor. So what you have done, you have maybe delayed, um, uh, let's say, a, a breakdown of a political system or advanced it, but you haven't really changed uh, much of anything. So this is this is would be this my interpretation of World War One is that if uh, that um, uh, Serbian nationalists didn't uh, shoot Archduke, then something else would happen, probably within a year, maybe two, because we know uh, that uh, Germans um, were really worried about Russia. Russia had a uh, miracle decade from the end of revolution of 1907. Uh, well, it did not, uh, was not long as, the, it was only seven years. The economy was growing at unprecedented rates very rapidly and the German uh, staff um, was um, very worried about Russia catching up and therefore they were uh, getting ready to do to have a preventive war and so if uh, gavrila princip didn't uh, assassinate archduke somebody something else would come along and trigger things mm-hmm. not to belabor this point but do you think there's any way in which we can use long term and average tendency to predict what will happen in a particular time and place in a statistical sense, yes. I'll give you an example. For example, um, people have been very impressed that we had the summer of 2020, the huge riots, lots of people actually getting killed, and then the January 6th of 2021. And now things seem to be uh, quieting down. The elections of 2022, uh, went reasonably without major surprises and uh, things like that. So does it mean that we are over? Here's where we can use the knowledge of statistical patterns to suggest that it is unlikely to be so, because typically these periods of political um, and, uh, and social turbulence, they tend to last for many years, sometimes for uh, sometimes systems collapse, of course, and you have a hundred-year 
of uh, fragmentation and things like that. But typically, the mode is between 10 and 20 years or so in the, in the data that we have examined. So, um, and there are some good reasons why. But uh, anyway, uh, right now, just to, to taking that as a statistical result, it means that it is unlikely that our society is so different from previous societies that uh, all the uh, turbulence will be over in just one year. That means that we are likely to see more turbulence in the uh, during the 2020s. I am particularly worried about 2024, right? And so uh, just that, because it's an election year, because it's an uh, election year in America, and we have two candidates uh, who are um, both now under legal proceedings. Lawfare is uh, going back and forth, uh, law, and the rhetoric continues to escalate, and uh, judging by previous uh, crisis of previous past societies sliding into crisis, it takes time. There is some inertia before people become ready to use violence, start killing other people. And um, the heating up of rhetoric is a very telltale sign mm. that this is uh, heating up. Mm. Now, I hope that I'm wrong. Because, you know, I live in this country and I don't want to have a civil war here. Um, I'm too old for those types <laughs> of things. But uh, unfortunately, the uh, chances are, now we're talking about uh, statistical patterns, chances yeah. are that we have um, a few more years of turbulence ahead of us. Yeah. And would you ever attach a specific probability to that? Or would you just, you know, say verbally that it's likely or unlikely? We, we can. Uh, of course, this would be, would be contingent. S uh, so saying that, um, uh, assuming that our society is not terribly different, let's say, from uh, the previous um, uh, societies, then uh, here is the probability. We just take the empirical distribution of times, and that gives us an estimate of what uh, is likely to happen to us. In terms of a specific probability? Yeah. So, okay. So I mean, so, so many, so many of these uh, crises were done in uh, seven years. So many in eight, nine, ten, uh, up to you know twenty, twenty-five, and so on. And mm -hmm. so this gives us an empirical um, estimate of the probability of the length that um, of that our crisis mm -hmm. will take to uh, to resolve. Okay. Some questions about data, or big data, or what you call the you know the clear dynamic macroscope before we move to structural demographic theory and end times. Sure. You mentioned Crisis DB, and that's obviously part of SESHAT, this incredible database that you and colleagues and a team of research assistants have assembled. So I'd love to ask a couple of questions about that. Firstly, how, how big is SESHAT? Well, it depends how you measure it, but uh, so classical SESHAT, and let me just explain that uh, we started building this database more than 10 years ago. And the first set of questions was to test theories about how did large-scale complex societies evolve? Why does uh, nearly 100% of humanity now lives in large-scale societies, which is typical only of the last 5% of our evolutionary history? All right, so uh, crisis DB is the next step now under, uh, to, uh, to understand, to test theories about why complex societies do periodically break down. Break down. 
Now, um, back to classic Sashat, uh, we have about 400, uh, 450 societies, and it's spanning uh, the past 10,000 years from quite small-scale societies, such as Neolithic uh, cultures, all the way to uh, states and uh, great empires, and up to 1800 or so. Uh, this uh, database is for pre-modern societies. Um, and for each of those, um, uh, roughly speaking, 450, and by the way, the number keeps growing. So it is, uh, we have another 150. So we will be 600 societies very soon because we are adding that to the database. But anyway, to go back to the original uh, set, for them, we have, uh, uh, we have coded hundreds of variables of which 160 are well-coded. All right, so multiply uh, 160 by 500, roughly, and you get uh, some idea about how much data um, uh, records are. So record is uh, the value of this variable for this society. Now, but each Sashat uh, uh, record is like a pyramid. It has uh, not only values, It also has some other stuff associated with it. So, for example, what's the certainty or uncertainty? Uh, what is, uh, whether it's a, there is agreement or disagreement? What are the references? So, altogether, it blows up to, uh, uh, to hundreds of megabytes of uh, information. Imagine it can get quite difficult trying to convert like historical evidence into digitized data that can then be fed into a clear dynamic model. Are there any stories you could share around that? Well, um, just to say that um, uh, that uh, it uh, was a process. And some it turns out that some variables are easier to code. You know, for example, one variable is, does this society have swords and uh, what metal they are made of? So that turned out, turns out to be reasonably um, easy to uh, conceptually to, uh, to, to um, de determine. We may lack the data because, let's say, there is no writing and very poor archaeology. But at least we know how, uh, if you have data, how we will, you know, for example, if you have enough burials, right, and there are no swords in burials, then we, uh, but other uh, weapons are present, then we can, uh, we can, Um, uh, conclude with high degree of probability that they did not have swords, mm -hmm. all right? But other um, variables are much harder. So we had uh, 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 one of our research projects was on understanding the evolution of moralizing supernatural punishment. So why did uh, re religions like Christianity Uh, taught that people get rewarded or punished um, in the afterlife? Or uh, why did uh, Buddhism teach that uh, how you escape the cycle uh, of, um, you know, um, of this terrible life and things like that? So there, there is a variety of theories, and that turned out to be quite contentious. And our first attempt did not work very well. Uh, so we had to essentially go back to the uh, drawing board, redesign the approach, and now it finally all got published about a year ago. So um, that's uh, an example where 
things were uh, quite involved. Just think about it. I mean, how do you code whether, whether a religion is moralizing or not? It's a hard question. Mm. You know, it requires a lot of thinking. It requires very close work with uh, experts who really understand those societies. But uh, experts are not enough because each expert, if, uh, they need to be able to understand what we mean by this. And most of them would not bother reading the definitions. And so that's why a member of, a, of the project has to work very closely with an expert to, uh, to elicit the correct information. Yeah, it got, it got me wondering, how much of a problem is it that labels and conceptual categories can vary across time and cultures? Exactly. That's that. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, our definitions of variables were designed and then refined in several cycles in such a way that they could be applicable both to Aztecs um, in Mexico, Chinese uh, during the Bronze Age, French um, in the medieval uh, ages, uh, in uh, in Middle Ages. So. Those um, uh, definitions uh, often had to be rewritten as we encountered new different societies. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, it's, uh, that's, what, that's why it was so much work, because then we had to go, go back and recode the data that we had already coded using the not-so-good definition. Right. It's an impressive project. <laughs> the, uh, Thanks. <laughs> well, this, this is the last question I had on data. I thought it was really, really interesting how the creative kind of proxies that you use, obviously past societies didn't always have big government agencies or private pollsters churning out yearly statistics. And so you have to kind of get creative about how you um, estimate the variables exactly. you're interested in, like violence, population growth and decline, et cetera. A couple of examples we might just touch on. Roman coin hoards, how do they illustrate population decline. Yeah. So essentially, some people, some uh, numismaticists, people who study old coins, they noticed that there is a correlation between times of travel and the number of hordes that you find. And that makes a lot of sense because coin hordes are typically used as the store of uh, wealth, and then uh, at some point, this wealth to be useful has to be dug up and used. All right. So if the uh, if a coin hoard was not dug up, that means that something terrible happened to the person who knew where it was buried. All uh. right. And so um, so one possibility is that they got just simply got killed. Yeah. Another one is that they may, maybe they were uh, driven into exile or enslaved, right, or something. Uh, so all of those are result of violence, all right. And so when we see uh, in one year, you know, 50 hordes, whereas uh, 10 years before there were only two or three because accidents happen all the time. Yeah. And so somebody, uh, but the, when we see, um, uh, when we make a curve, of the frequency of hordes, that uh, those curves trace quite closely the um, the periods of uh, internal violence or catastrophic invasion. So sometimes external wars, typically external wars, uh, if they happen around 
uh, the periphery of a, a large state that don't generate a huge amount of hordes because there are no armies uh, you know, marauding through. Mm. But um, civil wars are the primary producer of, uh, of uh, coin hordes, hmm. right? And it turns out to be a, a very good quantitative, because if you think about it, how do you quantify how severe a civil war was? Well, perhaps by the number of people killed, all right? That seems to be a good metric. I mean, it's horrible metric, but it's good for science. <laughs> so um, the um, number of people who are killed has some kind of a relationship to how many people who had, uh, who had buried hordes got killed, all right? And so in a relative sense, uh, the, if the number of hordes increases tenfold, that suggests that there was roughly, there was a roughly tenfold increase in uh, death rate. Mm. And that provides us with a quantitative proxy for the severity of civil wars. Yeah, yeah. Another one um, is, so data on height is a key measure of, popular immiseration, which is a concept we'll discuss more generally shortly. But this is kind of obvious, but can you just explain why height is such an important indicator of biological well-being? Yeah, so the uh, human height uh, typically gets set by early 20s. And after that, uh, by the way, sadly, we start shrinking. <laughs> so I'm a little shorter than what I was 40 years ago. Right. Well, you must have been very tall in your early 20s. <laughs> well, uh, for, for the, uh, for, uh, at the time, yes. Uh, but now, of course, because of acceleration and everything, there are lots, lots of uh, much taller people. Yeah. Anyway, um, so there are two growth spurts. The first one is the first five years or so. And the next one is the teenager, teenagers, uh, d different between uh, males and females. But um, it turns out that both are important in determining your uh, terminal height. All right, now, the uh, variation between individuals is uh, in height is mostly genetic. But if you are looking at a population of uh, the same genetic composition over time, then uh, shrinking heights indicate times of uh, misery, immiseration, because uh, for which could happen for a variety of reasons, uh, mostly because people uh, often uh, often uh, several reasons together. So, one of them is that people, uh, ch uh, children and uh, teenagers, don't get enough to eat. The second one is that they get uh, sick all the time, and because organism needs energy to fight sickness, or they're overworked. All right. So all of those um, measures of um, immiseration result in uh, dec uh, declining uh, population heights, mm. and it is remarkable uh, how um, sensitive this uh, this um, uh, indicator is. It's of course uh, mostly gives us information about general population. General population because the nobility and the elites they are typically their heights don't shrink, but then you see uh, sometimes five seven centimeter difference between nobility and peasants. All right, uh -huh. this is a measure of inequality uh -huh. uh, that uh, you you can uh, get from skeletal. Uh, uh, material and by the way, you all you have to do is a femur. If you have a femur, that's the big uh, bone yeah. in your leg, upper leg. All right, that is closely uh, correlated with overall height, and they and femurs are have pretty high probability of surviving. So you can estimate how uh, population uh, stature, height, average height, increased or decreased right. from the skeletons. 
So you take the length of the femur, you use a table of correspondences, and mm -hmm. then you just like average out the heights of each generation in a particular region. That's that, right. Yeah. Yeah. There's this really remarkable um, fact in your book, End Times, about how one of the reasons we know why American workers fared so poorly in the 19th century is because the average height of native-born Americans declined by five centimeters. Yeah. Which exactly. is two inches. a lot. Yeah, two inches. Yeah. So another way bones can be used is to measure violence. And uh, why is a high frequency of breaks on the left ulna, also known as the forearm, uh, in skeletons, good evidence of violence? Yeah. Well, that's because I, I wish um, your listeners could see us <laughs> demonstrate. <laughs> I could demonstrate it on you. <laughs> no kidding. Um, yeah. Well, if somebody, uh, most people are right-handed, and so... If somebody hits you with a club, you throw your arms up, and uh, since they are right-handed, um, they will hit your left forearm, right? And so that's uh, that's why it's a very... The other one is, um, of course, uh, that is, uh, you know, an arrowhead mm -hmm. stuck in in uh, bones or just, uh, uh, or just uh, uh, sitting inside yeah. your... Uh, uh, chest cavity, yeah. right? Not your, but the yeah. the, <laughs> the, uh, the person who was uh, yeah. killed by that, it. That's usually a good sign of violence. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about structural demographic theory. Now, I guess just to put this in context, there are many other empirical regularities in history that you've looked at across your body of work. And they're all fascinating. Sadly, we probably won't get time to talk about them all today. But for example, there's there's also, you know, besides secular cycles, there is um, the fact that huge empires tend to rise on step frontiers. Um, that's really interesting. There's like the autocatalytic models of religious conversion. That's again, fascinating. But because we're speaking mainly about end times, I figure today we'll just focus on on structural demographic yeah, that's theory. Right. I, those are the things that I talk about in my other books. Correct. Just to make sure that yeah. there's no false advertisement here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. So could you give a summary of structural demographic theory uh, in general? And I guess how, how you've kind of refined the theory yourself? Sure. So the first, first thing is that large-scale, complex societies organized the states there, they've been around for about 5,000 years. And we now have enough data to show that they can experience uh, long periods of internal peace and order. And notice at the same time, they could be fighting quite fierce wars outside, but we're talking about internal, absence of internal wars, mm -hmm. right? Often uh, about centuries, sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. But inevitably, such integrative periods, as you call them, they end, and they get into end times or disintegrative periods. Why? The most common feature of societies in the pre-crisis period is what you call elite overproduction, the, con the conditions of elite overproduction. So uh, let me unpack that. Mm -hmm. First of all, who are the elites? Simply put, small proportion 
of the population. Like one to two percent? One to two percent that concentrate social power in their hands. So think about, you know, the proverbial one percent here in the United States, all the things are a bit complicated. We can get back to that. Or the uh, Mandarin class in uh, Imperial China or of uh, military nobility in medieval France, Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And this is a very important point, that there is no, typically there is no sharp boundary between elites and Mm non-elites. It sort of grades, you know. So Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States, the wealth is the best marker for the elite status. So you can think about lower-rank elites like in the 10% of the top 10% of the a wealth uh, distribution, then you have 1%, and then you have 1% of 1%. And so obviously, the more wealth you have, the more power uh, you have. And mm-hmm. the same thing in the parallel political uh, pyramid, obviously, uh, as you work your way down from uh, the president uh, to, you know, a uh, lowly uh, bureaucrats, the amount of power decreases. So that's one important thing. But second important thing is in the dynamics. So how are elites reproduced and recruited? Typically, there are always more uh, elite wannabes, in the jargon, elite aspirants, who are vying for a limited number of elite positions. And and, uh, some competition for such uh, positions is good. All right, because it weeds out uh, better people. But it turns out that as competition becomes too intense, you know, once you have 10, 20, 30 times, as, uh, 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 well, 10, uh, two, three, four times as many um, aspirants as the positions for them, that uh, is uh, a bad sign. So in my book, I use the uh, game of musical chairs, uh, modified uh, musical chairs to explain this. Mm-hmm. So instead of, uh, so I don't know if your Australian uh, listeners know. Oh, we, but, we know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, all right. But so instead of, um, and the game, you, know, you start with 10 musical chairs and 11 um, contenders, right? But then instead of removing, uh, and, one, and one loses. But then instead of removing a chair, we, uh, we add to the number of players. So we start with 11, then it's 15, 20, 30, 40. You know, you can imagine, just if you just try to, uh, to think what would happen in this situation. I predict that within like uh, 10, uh, 15 or 20 minutes, there will be fist fights, <laughs> all right? Because some people will want to break the rules. There's always uh, some break, and that the rule breaking will spread. And uh, soon enough, we, uh, we would have uh, violence um, unless you're playing this game in Canada, yeah. because Canadians don't fight, all right. <laughs> but um, and sorry, the rule breaking spreads because like competition and cooperation are like an unstable. It's the outcome. Uh, so uh, some competition is good, but ex- uh, but too much competition is bad mm. because that's that's what corrodes the rules of the game. Yeah, right. Humans are not agents, uh, mathematical agents in uh, game game theoretic models who cannot break rules, right? Mm-hmm. Humans, uh, when they see that they're not getting ahead, they will start uh, breaking uh, rules. Somebody yeah. will, and then, it, then it spreads. We saw this um, in real life during the elections of 2016, when there were 17 Republican candidates uh, during the primaries. 
And one individual um, was very good at breaking rules and getting ahead in the game. And everybody actually started, not everybody, most other candidates also started breaking rules, but they were not quite as successful uh, in doing mm -hmm. that. And uh, since then, um, actually, even before then, the rule breaking was uh, started to happen because these um, conditions of elite overproduction, they um, started developing in the United States um, about 20 or more years ago. Mm. Okay, let's take a digression further down this path of elite overproduction, and then we can come back to structural demographic theory holistically. Okay. So, Peter, elite overproduction is probably the one idea of yours I've referenced most over the years. And it's like one of those things that once you understand it, you start to see it everywhere. Maybe like more than you should see it, but it just... I, I, <laughs> see, can't I, I see it, it everywhere, especially because we have it uh, quite uh, strongly developed in the States right yeah. now. Yeah, that's for sure. So it'd be interesting to discuss some um, specific examples. How does elite overproduction predict cancel culture? Right. So um, in the United States, we have the, ru the ruling class is the coalition of uh, wealth holders and credential holders, all right? So uh, in order to, if unless you have wealth or, or make become a self-made uh, wealthy person, the route to political office is pretty clear. You want to get a law degree, all right? But if you don't want to become president, but just you just want to escape precarity, for example, get into the top 10%, then you also want an advanced degree. It could be a PhD, medical, doctor, you know, uh, and several others. All right, so as a result of um, uh, elite war production, we have uh, too many uh, individuals who aspire for getting ahead, and so uh, they are all uh, trying to get credentials that would um, increase their chances. And as part of this, what we see is that some strategic individuals, uh, but maybe not very nice ones, start thinking ahead, and therefore they want to clear the ranks of competitors a little bit. And so how do you do that? In the old times, uh, and we actually do see this in uh, both in the 19th century and in the 17th century crisis, the elite aspirants would have jewels and kill each other using swords, uh, pistols, mm. or whatever. Nowadays, we are more civilized than that. So it's character assassination uh, <laughs> that works well. So if you think about it, so you, um, it becomes, uh, it's an ugly side of things, but you want to attack both the established elites, so professors, for example, because when professor is fired, an extra place uh, frees up but also your competitors. So you want to clear the ranks, uh, you know, uh, and, um, and, and, get, and increase your own chances. Right. And of course, not necessarily, this is not necessarily everybody who does this sure. uh, is uh, consciously uh, following this strategy. Uh, first of all, it could be uh, more on a subconscious level, but secondly, once this game starts, all right. We, once this elite reproduction game goes on, the um, uh, the norms of attacking competitors spread. Mm. All right, and so then many people actually might do it in self defense. Mm. So before they get accused. So this is the dynamic uh, that results in the explosion 
of uh, such um, of um, of cancel culture. Right. So think about cancel culture is like du uh, dueling uh, culture in uh, previous uh, more uh, brutal times. Yeah. So to put it back into the musical chairs metaphor, if I can get someone cancelled, that removes them from the game and makes it more likely that I'll get a seat. Exactly. Could we view the replication crisis in psychology as a, a consequence of intra-elite competition? But only partly. Right. Um, uh, partly, this is uh, the way that science uh, advances by uh, critiquing uh, previous uh, approaches that did not wor work uh, very well. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, uh, uh, some of it is normal scientific process, uh, cr uh, criticism uh, in science. Uh, it's very important. Um, uh, criticism is very important. It's just uh, to uh, to be effective at producing good science. You critique ideas, uh, data, methods, but not people. Yeah. Right now, as a result of um, of this uh, cancelling culture, the um, uh, it's spread to attacking people, ad hominem attacks, and that's the bad side right. of these critiques. But so, uh, so the crisis uh, of psychology, uh, it pr uh, probably would have happened anyway, uh, and it was uh, it, it was um, it had a positive effect on the quality of science. But as long as it would have been kept. Uh, from um, ad hominem attacks. Yeah. Is intra-elite competition fractal? So if the proportion of elite aspirants to elites gets out of control and there's a lot of competition between the 1%, is that also reflected in the 0.1%, the 0.01% and so on? Or is there like some threshold at which the, the competition kind of ceases? No, and we just saw a great example of that uh, where... Elon Musk and um, <laughs> and uh, Zuckerberg, who are now I don't I doubt it will ever come to a pass, but they uh, they are making serious yeah. sounding yeah. noises that they want to fight each other in the cage. <laughs> so yeah. no, it's uh, it's like with the turtles all the way down basically. Yeah. If that fight does come to pass, who are you putting your money on? <laughs> Um, cryodynamics does not have an insight <laughs> on this, <laughs> and it doesn't matter because yes, just the fact that they're fighting uh, is a sign of uh, 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 competition heating yeah. up. How is the degree of polygamy among elites connected to elite overproduction? Yeah, that's that's one of the um, uh, very interesting, uh, very r robust results from our analysis. I mentioned that. Uh, that complex societies go through these integrative phases, which are of variable length. And it turns out that um, in, poly in uh, polygamous societies, the integrative phases are much shorter. Mm. So Why? Like 100 years versus like 300 well, years? 100 isn't years, it? that's for the whole thing, for oh, the whole okay. cycle. Okay. It's, okay. Um, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, because, right. um, uh, because uh, it's uh, so it's typically. Uh, th this is actually a result which was noticed back in the 14th century by the by the great Arab uh, historian mm. and um, so sociologist. I, I'm not afraid to name him that way, uh, Ibn Khaldun. Ibn Khaldun um, noticed that dynasties um, in Maghreb, the, that North, North Africa where he lived, tend to last for only three or four generations. All right. Whereas, so that would be a seventy-five to hundred years, and then uh, they would be replaced uh, uh, by another group coming, typically from 
um, outside of this um, of this state um, uh, region uh, along the uh, Mediterranean border. Mm. So why? Uh, the reason is that um, if you have uh, polygamous elites, that means that uh, they produce children at a much uh, more rapid pace. So think about Bin Laden's, for example, mm. uh, who uh, who has like 100 uh, brothers or or, uh, or siblings or whatever. So that's uh, um, that's uh, a very um, a powerful engine for uh, driving elite overproduction up very rapidly. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. It, it made me wonder: is it in some sense possible that the Western practice of rich people having less kids? has been culturally selected for at the group level because it slows the rate of elite production and so makes those societies more stable? So, in fact, um, the number of children in uh, among the elites, even top elites, is quite variable. It uh, changes uh-huh. with time and so, so it's uh, this is a separate topic. But um, certainly I argue in, uh, in um, my work that monogamy spread as a result of uh, cultural selection, not only I. Uh, so people like Joe Henrik, for example, also uh, make this argument. And the reason is, is that polygamy generally is associated with negative effects at the society level. First of all, you have uh, you run much shorter integrative phases, but also there are plenty of other things. In modern societies, uh, we have good data. So the crime rates, murder rates, for example, they're much higher mm-hmm. in polygamous societies. There are um, many, uh, many uh, negative effects. And so this is what is not sometimes known as selection by consequences. Uh, monogamy, as far as we know, monogamy really was invented only once in, in Mediterranean in, amongst the Romans and Greeks, all right? And it spread uh, from there to the rest of the world. So most recently, um, uh, Turkey, for example, about 100 years ago, um, uh, switched from uh, polygamy to monogamy, even though they stayed a Muslim country. Japan is the same way, China. So all those societies were formerly polygamous, but uh, then they switched to monogamy. And the most likely reason is that uh, uh, that uh, uh, people there or elites there, uh, thought leaders realized that uh, switching to monogamy makes the society more cohesive, uh, more co- cooperative, and better to compete against other societies. Right, right. Why are lawyers so dangerous? <laughs> well, it turns out that lawyers um, are the most common profession f- uh, amongst revolutionaries. Mm. Lenin was lawyer, Castro, Robespierre, um, uh, uh, Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln, Gandhi. Yeah. Gandhi was not a revolutionary, but he was certainly uh, a, a very uh, influential agent of change. Yeah. Um, so um, the, uh, in the United States specifically, as I mentioned earlier, if you want to get into a political office, you want to get a law degree. And by the way, the best law degree apparently is from the Yale, Yale Law School. In fact, Yale Law School produces both uh, people who are very successful, but also 
counter elites, people, those right. elite aspirants who turn, who are frustrated and then turn away yeah. um, against like the, Stuart Rhodes. Stuart Rhodes, exactly, yeah. the uh, founder and the leader of the Oath Keepers. He got the Yale degree and several other uh, populist politicians. Uh, yeah. All right. So, um, and the reason is um, now, again, taking the case of the United States, we have a horrible overproduction of lawyers. There are three times as many uh, people getting law degrees as the positions uh, for them. And as a result of that, we see a really bizarre distribution of salaries uh, or that they that uh, newly minted lawyers receive i talk about this in my book that um we, there is one quarter get really huge salaries close to $200,000 all right and then uh, more than half get like around uh, between 50 and 70,000 which is not enough to even pay off the right. debts that you have and no and nobody in between bimodal so, yeah it's bimodal uh, so this means that we can we, we know who is the who are who who get those chairs, and those who don't get the chairs. Mm. All right, mm. and so the, of those who don't get the chairs, they are ambitious, uh, typically very smart, uh, uh, well organized, networked, uh, energetic, and so um, uh, the more of them are frustrated in their um, in their ambitions the more turn to starting uh, breaking rules and starting revolutionary movements uh, and something similar. Now, things are getting even worse because uh, it turns out that chat GPT-4 uh, already can automate 45% of what lawyers do. Uh, so instead of three to one, we soon will have six to one. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't <laughs> made that connection. I hadn't <laughs> updated on that, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Lawyers is the second profession after... Uh, of, not office workers, the you know uh, secretaries, t secretary types, uh, whose work is going to be automated uh, yeah. massively, yeah. right? Uh, and as a result, uh, it's going to be bad news unless we figure out where to put that energy into right. a productive uh, manner. Oh, so many reasons to be pessimistic. <laughs> As a, a side note, in terms of the significance of Yale Law School, I assume it's just a selection effect where it's the most prestigious law school, so that's where the elite aspirants choose to go. But but I'm, I was curious whether you had ever actually looked into the law school and its curriculum specifically to see maybe what, there's like something going on. There's like I have <laughs> not, yeah. But I might, yeah, um, I don't know why it's Yale, uh, because it it could be Princeton and uh, or Columbia or uh, whatever, Yeah. but... Uh, uh, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, but I don't know the answer to it. Yeah. In 2020, I actually tried to find some data on lawyers in the Australian context, um, just in a very amateurish kind of way. I was just curious. I couldn't really find anything, but there was this study that I think Urbis did where they looked at the number of solicitors practicing in Australia nationally, and that number had increased by about a third between 2011 and 2018, wow. whereas the general population had grown by about half that rate. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be interesting. Um, uh, yeah. Same thing we see in England um, in the run-up to the civil war of the 17th century. Right. We see the great overproduction of um, Oxford, Cambridge graduates, and uh, the, they had this uh, courts of law. Not course of law. They have a, this the third degree, which was uh, basically a law. Yeah, interesting. For solicitor, to get solicitor 
I forget the, um, uh, what's it's called. Huh. And the reason you know that, to bring this back to, to data, and I think Jack Goldstone wrote about this in Revolution and He's Rebellion. He's the one who found yeah, this which uh, is, factoid. Yeah, <laughs> sitting, sitting on your shelf behind me. But is you can look at the degrees, like measure the, the credentials. And there was like this explosion in enrollments at Cambridge and Oxford, which reached a peak in 1640, just on the eve of the Great Revolution. And then declined declines back yeah. to so pre, it, pre-1600 levels by the middle of the 18th century. That's right. So this is the credential, um, the race for credentials. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's why it's a good proxy for uh, elite overproduction. Yes. Just on, on Australia quickly, have you ever looked into any Australian data generally? No. Okay. No, because um, keep in mind that getting all those studies, uh, th- that's a lot of work. Yeah. Many months of work or sometimes even years. And so th- I, I have just um, published a blog post where we invite other people to, uh, to start collecting such uh, data. We published a uh, methodology article for them to use right. um, uh, as a guideline for data collection. Okay. So last question on elite overproduction, then we can come back to structural demographic theory more broadly. But I was wondering to what extent can a solution be to just increase the elasticity of the supply of elite positions? So like you could think about this at like an institutional level where, and this already exists to an extent, but like mm-hmm. the number of seats in parliament kind of just like mechanically or Congress like mechanically increases with population size. Maybe we want to like change the ratio or something mm-hmm. so that they're even more elastic. Or you could think about it at a technological level so we could create outlets for elite frustration. So one example might be social media. And Tyler Cowen argued in one of his earlier books, What Price Fame, that fame remains positive sum at its current margins. So you could you could let more and more elites just get famous and it, 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 like f- for quite some time it won't become a zero-sum competition. What do you think about that idea? Well, uh, yeah, keep in mind that um, f- at the people who are following the credential route, many of them don't necessarily want to become president and prime minister. They just want to get um, out, uh, out of precarity. Mm. So one way uh, to choke off uh, that supply is to uh, to get rid of uh, immiseration. This is something that we want to talk uh, next, I believe. Yeah. Because the majority of population in the United States, their well-being has been declining. That's one of the push factors that uh, people want to get the uh, credentials. And as a result of that, so many people now go into college that the college, the premium, College premium has been uh, shrinking, mm. and now it's essentially zero. Mm. All right. But there are many other things. So, for example, I'm very partial to historians. I want to have more historians around. They may not like cleodynamics, but that's that's fine, because just by being historians, they're churning out all the data that you want. So why don't we take like half, uh, cut in half uh, the horrendous... Uh, budget of uh, for the military that we have in the United States, right? It's nearly a trillion dollars. And give some, even one-tenth part of that savings to just uh, hire historians, to give them stipend or something. So all we have to do is publish good uh, work, uh, hopefully more numbers, uh, <laughs> right, for us, but whatever. You know, something like that. 
or uh, you know maybe uh, Elon Musk um, is right that uh, we need to go to the planets and so provide an outlet for uh, some ambitious people to uh, you know uh, to apply their energies uh, elsewhere. So in principle, once we start thinking about it, it's it's not we don't want to increase the number of uh, senators or something like that. That number should be really set by what is the optimum uh, you know number for governing a country, mm. right? But what we do um, want, we want to provide outlets for the energies of young people to have meaningful uh, life uh, and to make uh, meaningful change, positive change. And that is uh, one of the reasons that why we have um, so much difficulties is because we, uh, there is, um, you know, we have, uh, our societies have failed to expand the opportunities for uh, bright, energetic, and ambitious people to apply themselves. Right. It doesn't have to be uh, that they would get more power, right? Just uh, that could be meaning in life could be achieved in other ways. Yeah, that's interesting. Have you heard of the effective altruism movement? Yeah. That seems to be an outlet for very talented people to seek meaning and status within a certain community that doesn't necessarily rely on um, wealth or income. Yeah, actually, that, that just raises a more general question, which is what kind of cultural or social innovations could we create to provide that outlet? So structural demographic theory strongly relies on the iron law of oligarchy. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because um, I want to tie uh, to the question of why... Well, should we, yeah, should we do popular immiseration? Yeah, but I can do it. Okay. Uh, I can wrap it in one sort of package. Mm. So the question is that, um, obviously, elite production is something that develops at some times, but not others, right? Yeah. Because we have those integrative periods. So the question is, uh, why? Why um, Why does elite production develops? Well, the reason is is that, um, uh, let me just compress the long story into um, in just a set of uh, theses. Mm -hmm. uh, if once uh, societies uh, run for uh, several generations enjoying internal peace and order, that um, uh, the elites, the ruling class, tends to assume that that's an automatic thing, right? does not need to be nurtured. And they are tempted to reconfigure the economy in ways which would work not for everybody's benefit, but for their own benefit. And they mm. can do it because they have power. So mm. this is the iron law of oligarchy. And um, this has three uh, bad uh, consequences. So first of all, this results in immiseration because you're, you call it the wealth pump. It's the perverse wealth pump that takes from the poor and gives it to the rich, all right? And the ways, uh, there are many ways to do it, uh, but for example, um, uh, in the United States, uh, by taking away, uh, by not increasing the minimum wage, by um, uh, by um, taking away the uh, power of workers to organize and uh, bargain with uh, employers, so this is, uh, and also by 
uh, in decreasing taxes on themselves. That's how they did. That's how they turned the wealth pump in the states in the 1970s. All right, but this is typical thing. This happens in medieval um, France, for example, or um, or Rome, and so on and so forth. All right. So then, uh, first of all. Uh, this creates uh, immiseration. The quality of life for the majority of population declines, and that drives their discontent and what you call mass mobilization potential. Mm -hmm. So that's one uh, force under, under, undermining stability. Secondly, it results in overproduction of people with wealth. And many of those uh, decide to go into the political arena. And so now you have the game of aspirant chairs because uh, in the United States, for example, uh, the number of decamillionaires, people with $10 million or more of wealth, increased tenfold mm -hmm. over the past 40 years. And so that created many more aspirants uh, for uh, positions of uh, in, in politics such as Donald Trump, of course, but also Michael Bloomberg, or f the failed ones like Steve Forbes, uh, for example, and many uh, more. And some of them run themselves and others run uh, candidates. So we yeah. have overcrowding. So that's the second problem. The third pr problem is that by increasing immiseration, we now create another pump that is essentially induces um, ambitious and energetic uh, people from the immiserated uh, class to try to get out of it, right. which drives uh, the credential uh, revolution because that's how you get out. And so that creates overproduction of people seeking credentials. To escape. Right. And so as a result of that, we have overproduction of the wealthy people, overproduction of credentials, and they are, um, and they are the ones who eventually bring uh, an end time. <laughs> Yes. To, to their societies. So this is how the wealth pump, immiseration, and little overproduction, that's how they're connected at the dynamical level. Yes. So oh, I guess one of the uh, key observations in that model is that crises aren't caused by the popular masses revolting. They're caused by the counter elites who then kind of mobilize and co-opt the masses. And is the reason that the masses don't initiate revolutions that they are, I guess, like less talented than the elites? Or is it simply that because it's a larger group, it makes collective action difficult, if not impossible? So it's, um, it's, the, or it's organization. Yeah. Uh, why do we need uh, elites at all, by the way? Because uh, human society, in order to function properly, needs organization. That's why we are organized as states or the, in the business as firms and so on and so forth. Now, uh, the commoners um, uh, are uh, not uh, organized. So think about uh, the uh, Jacquerie, you know, that uh, very bloody peasant rebellion in France in the 14th century. Mm. They would happily uh, have a revolution and overthrow novels. In fact, they killed quite a lot of them. But then as soon as the uh, first organized and well-armed group of knights appeared uh, on the horizon, they just rode them down and, and killed them off and dispersed uh, the rest. So uh, the, uh, and the difference is in organization, but also elites have uh, better uh, 
armor and uh, weapons and things like that. And it's the same thing um, nowadays. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the elites, by definition, because social power, social power means um, uh, is, is the capacity to organize. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, the, um, without, uh, when the elites are uh, united and the state is strong, uh, popular uh, uprisings are happen, but they are very ineffective, and they result in a lot of bloodshed for the peasants themselves. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about narratives that elites use to justify and defend popular immiseration to the workers themselves. So, if the narrative used in the post nineteen seventy period in a word was meritocracy. Like the idea that, you know, hey, don't get envious or resentful, just work hard and you can be like us too. So if that if that period used meritocracy as a narrative, what what was the narrative during the first Gilded Age or at other points during disintegrative oh. phases? Yeah. The, Have you are there any examples you can Sure. Details of the ideologies uh, change, but the um, uh, end result is the same. So in the Gilded Age, that was uh, the um, social that was social Darwinism, mm. right? Some people were essentially genetically, you know, genetically worthy uh, or you know equipped uh, to be leaders and rich and so on and so forth. Before that, it was uh, during the 17th century. It was uh, God basically. Right in many Protestant versions of the religion, uh, you um, uh, you know some people were preordained to be successful, and others uh, were not. In the um, Middle Ages, uh, the nobility said, "Because I had uh, ten generations of uh, of ancestors, therefore I'm uh, deserving." To live by the use, but the end result is always the same. Right, right. It's the elites justifying uh, their uh, their uh, uh, justifying inequality, essentially. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, so I think I've I've got about well, I've got about twenty five questions left, but I'll pick the five best ones, and we'll try and get through them. So, in two thousand and ten, in this this now famous Nature article. You predicted that the next decade is likely to be a period of growing instability in the United States and Western Europe. That prediction played out. Obviously, we had the kind of year from hell in 2020 in America. Question is, if the pandemic hadn't happened, do you think the prediction still would have played out? Uh, Possibly. um, It it would still play out, but the timing uh, could could have been uh, delayed. Okay. That's that's the most likely thing. So epidemic was one of those triggers. But on the other hand, remember that those triggers also uh, tend not, to, their distribution tends to be much uh, more frequent during the times of trouble, hmm. right? In fact, there is a very close correlation between uh, end times and epidemics. They tend to happen much more, li- they're much more likely during those uh, disintegrative periods. Right. Yeah. Makes sense because people can't cooperate to prevent the spread of 
typically the well-being goes down, which makes people more susceptible to uh. disease. Then you have globalizations because wealthy people drive trade and, uh, and disease moves along the trade uh, uh, routes. So there is a variety of uh, reasons why uh, diseases tend, tend to happen during those periods of I time. See. So before we move on to, I guess, like what we can do about all of this, is there anything else you'd say on either structural demographic theory generally or the trends that you've witnessed in the US specifically? No, I think let's, yeah, because we have limited time, let's, uh, let's address those uh, questions. Yeah. Uh, so, so at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that you've studied about 300 crises and some have fairly benign endings, some have disastrous endings. Of the kind of more optimistic cases you've looked at, do you know what caused those good endings? And to what extent are those near misses the result of individual agency or kind of heroic leaders versus like maybe they could be the result of structural forces that you just haven't detected yet? Well, it's uh, both. Uh, sometimes, so let's take the... Chartist period in the 19th century mm -hmm. uh, British Empire. There was uh, definitely uh, some pro-social leaders and there were some anti-social leaders. So like uh, Duke Wellington, uh, for example, the, um, uh, the general who, uh, who led uh, British troops at uh, Waterloo, Battle of Waterloo, he was uh, a very conservative leader, had huge amount of power and status because of this. And so until they got, he was out of the uh, picture, really no um, reforms could go forward. So here, here we have an individual who had a negative effect. But also there were some structural things. The British Empire was huge. So first of all, they shipped millions of people uh, to places like Australia. There was also immigration to North America. And that re relieved the uh, labor oversupply mm -hmm. and removed one of the engines driving the wealth pump. Secondly, they also shipped uh, quite a bunch of surplus elites to positions in the empire. But uh, those were all temporary mechanisms. This is sort of uh, work to flatten the curve, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. All right. It gave more time for the elites to pull together, get rid of uh, non-cooperating individuals like uh, Wellington to, ad to address um, the, mm, uh, the deep causes of the, of the problems. Of the crises that ended badly, how many of those do you think, and you can answer this very roughly, but how many of those could have been averted had the elites at those times understood yeah. your theory? Now, this is a difficult question because... Uh, most of this uh, end times end up bad, badly. Yeah. So it suggests uh, that um, it suggests that uh, for in some situations, even people, you know, let's say you put me, you make me a czar um, in uh, in late 16th century in Russia, even though I understand now perfectly well what was going wrong. I would be unlikely to be able to do anything because, mm. uh, you know, persuading people uh, that uh, I know what's, what, what the problem is. Yeah. You know, they would cut my head off uh, before <laughs> I would get very far. So, so my guess is that um, it's um, that there, are, there were many examples of good pro-social leaders uh, who, in fact, understood, at least intuitively, the problem 
but they just couldn't get uh, enough other people to cooperate with them. And right. so the whole thing uh, collapsed. I guess there's, there's also this problem of things like hyperbolic discounting where elites can prioritize their short-term material interests over like the long-term risk of going down with the ship. That's right. Have you thought about reflexivity? So you mentioned that, you know, the, the end goal of Kerr Dynamics is to presumably, you know, transfer out of the ivory tower and persuade um, politicians and public policy to take its ideas seriously, to have a, a positive influence in the world. So if it is successful, if that does happen, I, I mean, I guess I can see a couple of ways it could go. Maybe one is that people start, people take the theory seriously. They see like leading indicators for a disintegrative phase and then they try to preempt it. Or alternatively, maybe they view the model as like somehow inevitable and that like reinforces it. So how, how do you think about those how those dynamics feed back into the model? And how would you actually model those dynamics? Well, you have already a prototype oh, well. where um, it's published um, uh, an article okay. uh, where uh, I uh, run the forward, the trajectories, and we can look at what sort of nudges and uh, changes need to be done. This is a prototype, so mm-hmm. it should not be taken seriously, just, uh, just to indicate where we need to... Uh, to put more research effort to uh, to develop it into a more fully engineering social engineering problem. Yeah. So I'm pretty. Um, I'm actually an optimist uh, by nature. This time around, uh, we missed the opportunity to head off the crisis. But I think for the, but the next time the crisis comes around, uh, by that point, um, I think that we will have much better theory, and uh, and it will be possible to. To um, to use it um, uh, in a way to essentially get rid of those end times. Yeah. Okay. Three final questions. When did you read War and Peace, and was it compulsory reading in the Russian school system? Yeah. Hmm. And I, but I read it even before. Uh, before I actually read it three, four times. Wow. Uh, yeah, the first time before then uh, for, uh, for the class, then I read it again for enjoyment. And the fourth time I read it uh, more recently when I was writing uh, my uh, my book, uh, Ages of Discord and Outer Society. Okay, so to what extent has your view on history been influenced by Tolstoy? To some degree, uh, more, yeah. Uh, he's, um, uh, he, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, I don't take everything that he said Hundred percent, right? But uh, several of his ideas uh, are uh, have been uh, have been quite uh, influential mm-hmm. uh, for me. So the basic, mainly his idea, which is similar to uh, Isaac Asimov's idea in the in foundation in the foundation series, that you can uh, do a lot of you can make a lot of progress understanding the dynamics of societies by ignoring individuals and focusing on macro level mm. and meso level dynamics. Mm. Right. And then I guess maybe his second idea to influence you is his version of Asabaya. Asabia. Uh, Asabia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Who has been your greatest intellectual influence? My father. Tell me about him. Uh, he was um, a physicist by education, but then he also, like myself, uh, or rather me like him, switched uh, into more into cybernetics, more uh, essentially uh, fairly rarefied computer science, uh, theoretical computer science. 
Uh, and um, he was a very remarkable individual and uh, he had a huge influence on my thinking. Final question. Complexity science applied to history reminds us that the veneer of civilization is thin and that seemingly stable civilizations, governments can kind of collapse overnight. As we kind of think about the American situation, what's your favorite example, or maybe you have a couple from history of revolutions or collapses that happened almost overnight? Well, um, they usually don't happen overnight. No, there literally is, There overnight. is some inertia. Yeah. People need some time to, uh, to psych themselves up for violence. At least normal people, not, uh, you know, not assassins or somebody like that. Right. And so it typically takes um, uh, days, weeks, sometimes months. All right. But, um, yeah, uh, probably since we are in the United States, we should think about uh, 1860. Hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, the 1850s was a period when uh, violence kept uh, going up and up. And so we had bloody Kansas uh, and several other incidents. And then um, and, and, the, and uh, no Americans really believed that what would happen in the next, you know, five years is that 600,000 people would get killed and uh, a lot of uh, and a lot of uh, real estate <laughs> uh, destroyed right and so when uh, in south carolina they attacked fort sumter mm. they uh, clearly did not think that they would be completely devastated by this thing this is uh, the law of unintended consequences <laughs> all right and so this is something that we i agree with you that um, complex societies are very fragile. We just don't understand. Most people uh, who don't study history don't understand how fragile they are. We th everybody thinks that this time is going to be different. We will not have. In fact, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to imagine civil war in the United States. But it was hard for Americans in 1850s to imagine civil war. Mm. Just because you can't imagine it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And I'm not saying that it's 100% going to happen. All right, but the probability is more than zero. Peter Tershin, I think I've got through about half of my questions, so we'll have to do this again sometime, but this has been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. Two quick things before you go. First, for show notes and the episode transcript, go to my website, jnwpod.com. That's jnwpod.com. And finally, if you think the conversations I'm having are worth sharing, I'd be deeply grateful if you sent this episode or the show to a friend. Message it to them, email them, drop a link in a WhatsApp group, or even better, blast it out on Twitter. The primary way these conversations reach more people is through my listeners like you sharing them. Thanks again. Until next time. Ciao.